This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Jean Berko-Gleason. She's a pioneer in the field of psycholinguistics. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Just this microphone so I don't have to break my neck talking. All right. I don't want you to break your neck talking, so please well, take your time. It, it, it could happen. Or we could talk <laughs> at breakneck speed, right. <laughs> which is always fun. <laughs> I used to tell that to my kids. I used to say, you want me to tell you the story of the three little bears? All right, here we go. Let's put out the three little bears. <laughs> I'm just it doesn't come down, or should I? You want no, to hike no, me this up? This one of those great mics that picks everything. So up. it's omnidirectional, as it, they say. No, it is not. It's not. So I should aim toward it. Yeah, you should. Well, you don't look right. toward. No, no, don't no. look towards it. I okay. got it just so. It okay, you're perfect, and I'll just. Well, I get paid the big bucks, you know. I'll, I'll do what you say. <laughs> yeah. who, who am I talking to, host? This is Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. Hi. Uh, I, 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 my program is called On Being. I don't know if you heard it, Ron, in Boston. Yeah, I, 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 it's placed at 6 o'clock in the morning It does, Boston, on WGBH, yeah. Uh, I checked it, but then since 6 o'clock is about two hours it, after I go to bed. Yeah, I, I know. Down. It's been on other It's on to other times on WBUR, but it's up in... Uh, anyway. Oh, is it? Yeah. Well, um, I, I should look that up. But since you I only checked it... I checked it on WGBH because somehow, but I should have been smart because mm. WBUR really replicates. Well, you, th- I know. These two stations do so, all the same thing. I know. So, um, Do you have any questions for me before we start, or do you want to hear uh, well, a little... Well, yes. Are we... Uh, we're not live, right? We're not live, no. Okay. So you're recording, and if we say something that's completely outrageous, you will be able to remove it? Exactly, or keep it, because it's so great. We get to be nonlinear right. and uh, right. have a real conversation. All right. And and it's this is public radio, so when should that use dirty words? And that <laughs> that's right. Well, you can use them if you have to, but we have to put warnings in, and it's no fun. <laughs> okay. I, I don't want to get bleeped. All right. <laughs> Bleeping is bad. <laughs> Okay, so okay. I think I I, I read the uh, I read the web page. I read your web page. All right. I, I read about you and about your previous incarnations, and in in terms of uh, the, the shows you've had, great, or your name changes, mm-hmm. I guess. And um, as I told the people who contacted me, I do not do religion, so uh, you have to know that. Yeah. And and uh, if that's okay with you, it's okay with me. That's... I've got I've gotten this far. Okay. No, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm I'm delighted that you've gotten this far. Okay. And and uh, I've I've have plenty of people on the show, particularly scientists who aren't religious uh-huh. or aren't religious in any traditional way. Right. Um, right. And our and our listeners are all all across the spectrum, which is right. exciting. Well, which is one of the exciting right. things about the show. Yes. Um, okay. I do. I do want to start. I do start here with everyone, uh, wherever they are on the religious spectrum now. Just to ask, was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? Um, was there a religious or spiritual background in my childhood? Yeah. My parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe, from Transylvania. Yes. And traditionally, they came from little towns where their families were Jewish. My father had sort of ethnic feelings about Judaism, and my mother was violently anti-clerical. So I had no religious upbringing and probably went to more midnight masses than uh, than anything in a temple. I I guess I never went to a temple service as a child and had no religious training. Okay. When had they come? When had they left Transylvania? 
Well, my father was brought as a little boy when he was about eight, and that was around 1905. Uh And my mother came after World War I in the early 1920s when she was herself in her early 20s. Okay. So I, I, I... as I look at your uh, your background, it, it seems clear that you, you didn't know from childhood that you would be a linguist, but that you were always fascinated with languages. And I wonder, Absolutely. you know, do you know where that came from? Was that planted somewhere actually, in your family? Actually, uh, there's, there's, there's probably a part of my family that, that has to do with it. One, I think some people are just interested in language. I mean, I, I just happen to find it easy to talk all kinds of languages, and I find it amusing, and I just love them. But I think there was a personal thing in my life as well, which is that I had an older brother who had cerebral palsy, Mm -hmm. and he was really smart. In fact, he ultimately got a Ph.D. from Cornell, and he was a smart, lovely guy, but he had motoric incapacities Uh such that his speech was extremely difficult to understand, and I was probably the person who really understood him best. So when I was a kid, I was the person who, uh, when my brother Marty had problems saying something, I was the person who knew what he was saying and told everybody. So I guess my early experience as an interpreter had something to do with it, too. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, and then you went to college and you studied literature and history, and then you you just kind of discovered yes. psycholinguistics. Or uh, rather by happenstance. Uh-huh. No, cycle. Well, was it psycholinguistics by then? It, it was. Well, uh-huh. it, it wasn't called that. It was mm-hmm. called the psychology of language. And it was a course I took my senior year in college. I had been taking all these languages. I had taken French and Spanish and Arabic and – no, I took Arabic later. I'm sorry. And Russian and – Norwegian. I don't know. A lot, I had taken a lot of languages. But my senior year in college, I took a course on the psychology of language taught by a new young assistant professor who had just come from the University of Michigan. And his name was Roger Brown. And the course blew me away because it really talked about the things that were interesting to me, about how it is that human beings store language in their heads, how you acquire language, what happens when you lose language, uh, all of the sort of psychological things that have to do with language. And Roger Brown then went on to be somebody who made a major breakthrough in this field, right? Studying Adam well, and Eve and Sarah. Were those yeah. real names? No, they weren't. But I think um, I think you might be interested to know that uh, although they were made up names, they were real kids. They were kids in the Harvard uh, daycare or preschool, whatever it was called in those days. It was a big. If if you know Cambridge, Massachusetts, there's a, uh, a psychology building. It's called William James Hall, hmm. and where William James Hall used to be. Uh, where William James Hall is, there used to be a, a preschool in a Quonset hut, hmm. uh, a, a leftover World War II Quonset hut. We used to go there and sit on tiny chairs with great big tape recorders and record these kids. And they were three children whose parents were somewhere in the system of, of going through Harvard. And what's happened of interest lately is that the, the child we called Adam has been in touch with us. 
Oh, so really? The, yes. So usually, you know, usually you sign a, uh, a confidentiality thing with people, and of course we did, and we agreed to keep people anonymous, but if they want to come and make themselves known, of course that's just delightful because it's wonderful to see what happens to people 20 and 30 and 40 years later. So we've been in touch with Adam, and we have his picture. In fact, uh, my colleague Nan Bernstein-Ratner and I are just publishing the eighth edition of our textbook on language development, and sure enough, we have a picture of Adam as a little boy, and Adam is a grown man. He's grown up to be a public speaker, an entrepreneur, a CEO, a top-rated tennis player. I mean, he's turned into a really interesting person. But it's just wonderful to see that continuity. Does he have anything to say about how being part of that study influenced him? No, I don't think it influenced him. He didn't know anything was happening except that periodically people came to his house and sat with a tape recorder oh. I mean, because because the whole idea was to, uh, to observe naturalistically what was happening in people's houses. This, right. what, what this study did was it, it sent people on a, like a monthly basis to children's houses and tape recorded all of the interaction between the child and parents. And then they came back and gave, uh, gave assistants or us, whoever we were, the uh, tapes and people transcribed those tapes, typed them out just just like the script of a play. And then a, a group of graduate students and Roger Brown would sit around the table looking at these transcripts and say, what's going on here? What are these kids doing? What, what's their language? What's their grammar? What's their sound system? How do they make a question? You know, we began to really look into what the development of language looked like in a very naturalistic setting. So we didn't we didn't interfere with Adam. We tried to keep him the same little boy he always was. Right. You know, as I started to really steep myself in understanding what you do and what you know, where it took me was. Um, I didn't learn any uh, foreign languages when I was growing up. I grew up in Oklahoma, which is not a very internationally focused place. <laughs> no, but no, it's, it's too far from the ocean. It's too far. Yeah, exactly. And everybody forgot where they came from. Um, yeah. But when I went to college, I, I ended up learning German as a young adult and becoming uh-huh. fluent in German. Um, Good. And, good, I and, mean. Yeah. <laughs> See, good. God's, and I, God's good. And I had this experience. You know, One thing that happened then, which I was re- recalling, was... As I really learned the ins and outs of a new language, and, and German, of course, is very highly structured, so it was, you know, it's quite intentionally learning the ins and outs. Yes, yes. I became aware that I didn't know, at least consciously, know much of that about my mother tongue, right? That I, that I wouldn't possibly right. be able to explain to someone else how I constructed mm-hmm. a sentence in mm-hmm. English the way I could construct a sentence in German. And, mm-hmm. and this took me also, to, you know, I, I sense this excitement in your writing and in all the writing in your field about just how amazing it is that we learn language and inhabit it starting so young in our lives. Well, it is it is remarkable, but, but you know, the, the real appreciation of what we're doing didn't come until basically this century. There's, in the past, people were interested in in language and in how kids acquired language. You know, Charles Darwin wrote notebooks about one of his sons, and he outlined how the kid acquired language in, in some sense, but not in the sort of, what you might say, componential way that we now understand. Mm-hmm. Because now we understand that language 
is made of a bunch of subsystems, a sound system, a meaning system, a syntactic system that, that allows you to make sentences. Uh, and, and we know how those are structured in the languages we study. So now we can, we can have the linguist describe the language. You know, for, you're quite right. If you ask a speaker, what are the sounds of English? What they're going to tell you is, well, they're the vowels A, E, I, O, and U. You know, they will name the, the alphabet letters, yeah. but they won't really know what the sounds of English are, and they won't know which ones are the important ones in mm-hmm. some sense, mm-hmm. especially because sometimes really important ones are written the same way. There'll be two different sounds written the same way, and you don't know, are they the same sound or a different sound? Do they make a difference? You know, Are they phonemes? Let me give you an example. Okay. Um, what we write is TH in English, right? So we like in this, right? Mm-hmm. This or that. But it also you also find it in in an unvoiced. That's that's a voiced sound. That's a voiced interdental. Okay, you put, okay. it's a weird sound. Okay, that, it's a weird sound. And as you know, people from other countries have a terrible time making that yes, sound. Yes. Okay. Well, because what? But uh, think about how you have to make it. That's another thing. People don't know how they make it. You have to put your tongue between your teeth and blow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's a very bizarre thing to have to do. But, but you don't but think you, about it if you've been doing it all your life. You don't. Of course not. Yeah. But, but it's late to be acquired. Uh-huh. It's late to be acquired because it's hard. But uh-huh. here's the thing. When you say this, you're not only putting your tongue between your teeth and blowing, you're also vibrating your vocal folds. It's a voiced sound. So when you say the sound this, it's voice. When you say thin which is spelled also with the T-H, right? Mm-hmm. They're both spelled with the T-H. That's without voicing. So if you say to an English speaker, okay, sometimes you say the, and sometimes you say the. Are those different sounds? Right. And and it's really, you know, we take you a very, very long time to think about whether or not those are, if the difference between them is an important difference in English. What do you think? Uh, do What do I think? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, I get I get to ask questions too. <laughs> I mean, but that that's it. We don't we don't think about this. Uh, and, all right, is the is the distinction between the and the an important one, such that you can make a difference in meaning just between those two sounds? I think it is. Uh, 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 you're right, yes. and I'll give you the example because uh-huh. we have words in English like thy and thigh, where the right. only difference between those two words is the voicing on the the in one of them. So right. that, we, that way we know that the and the are two separate phonemes in English. But the English spelling system doesn't give you any help that no. way because it spells them both exactly the same way. So speakers of English without special training are pretty well misled, one, by what they're taught in school. You know, here are the vowels, here are the consonants of English. I mean, right. the consonants in the alphabet represent a lot of consonants, but it's not a one-for-one correspondence between, say, a, a, a G in the alphabet and the sounds that that G represents. It represents a lot of different sounds, like G and J, right? So, and so what I learned from you is that children start to acquire these things and as well as thousands of vocabulary words um, and rules and systems by the time they're three or four and that children do this in every known society, whether it's literate or not, in every language. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, liter- liter- literacy, written language, is a, a very late acquisition in terms of human evolution. You know, right. human beings have been speaking for hundreds of thousands of years, maybe a million years. Nobody really knows because how are you going to reconstruct whether or not a particular group of people spoke? But 
but it's part of our ancient, ancient heritage as as humans. But writing certainly isn't. Right. And, you know, we know about writing for maybe 5,000 years, 10,000 years, however long, but that's not part of our genetics in the same way that, that spoken language is. So spoken, spoken language is the basis that, from which such things as written language stem. So I want to talk about um, something that was a big contribution of yours, the WUG test. Um, ah, yes. And so and I want to ask you, so, so I'm, I'm thinking that, so that, you know, again, in this, in this realm of what we take for granted and don't think hard enough about, you know, the fact that right. the children know grammatical forms that nobody's ever really tried to teach them, that, that young children say things they've never heard anyone say before. And right. Your test was kind of doc- demonstrating that. It did. It did. It, it did. The test showed that even very, very little kids, namely children of three, uh, are able to make plurals of words they've never heard before and past tenses of verbs they've never heard before and a lot of other forms in the language uh, in a creative way they, they've never heard before, which, you know, if you... Well, the classic the classic example is the wug itself, right? Uh-huh. The wug is a little creature. It looks like a little birdie. Uh, it's very nice when you do things with kids to do things that interest them because yeah. if you give kids a test that, that they can't bear to do, they'll just blow you off. I mean, they're just bored. So right. you need to... You, you know, rule one is get their attention. And you got to create to a mythical creature. I mean, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> I did get to create a mythical creature yeah. who's been around for so long, it would be embarrassing to tell you. But, but you know, there you can. Uh, shall I advertise? You can you can buy all kinds of wug things out there. I mean, we have a wug, we have a wug store on the internet. You can buy wug mugs. Well, a lot of people. I, I have I give wug mugs to people. I, I just sent one to Stephen Pinker, as a matter of fact. I promised I promised Steve a wug mug. But uh, a lot of people have them. But what I showed with, with let's give me let's let's give the example of of the wug. I, I drew a little picture of a little wug, and then there were two. So I say to kids, this is a wug. Now there's another one. There are two of them. There are two. And even little bitty kids say two wugs. Even little three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds without a problem fill in that z sound. They know how to make a plural of a word they've never heard before. We had to use nonsense words because if we use regular words, you could just say, well, they memorized it. You know, I said, here's a dog. Now there's another one. There are two. I guess there are two dogs. It only proves they've heard somebody say two dogs. Right, right, right. if they say two wugs, and then... And then the WUG test, obviously, you know, I've run into people who thought that that was the WUG test. You ask a question, but that is not the WUG test. The WUG test investigated English inflectional morphology. It investigated, for instance, the plural in English is made, the regular plural, never mind children and oxen and brethren and things like that. The regular plural in English has three different forms depending on the stem of the word that it's going to be added to. So if the word ends with a voiced sound that is not a sibilant, the plural is a z. So you can say one day, Mm -hmm. two days, Mm -hmm. one dog, two dogs, uh, one play, two plays, whatever. Anything that ends in a voiced sound gets a a z, unless unless it is a sibilant, a z or z sound, okay? If it ends in a voiceless sound, like a t or a k or a p, then the sound is s. Like right. hat, hats, right. cap, caps, etc. If it ends in a sibilant like s, like kiss, then the plural is us. 
So one kiss, two kisses. Now, what we found was that kids acquire these different forms of the plural in different order. So they they acquired the simple z sound, which is the most pervasive in English, first. The youngest kids. It's hard to find a kid who can't tell you two wugs. I mean, if they can talk, they're they're gonna they're <laughs> gonna be getting there very soon. Uh, the s is a little harder. It's, if you say this is a a, a bick, now there's another one. There are two. Some kids will have trouble telling you two bicks. And what's really hard is if you give them a word that ends in an S. We gave them a word. We said, this is a tass. Now, there's another one. There are two of them. There are two. Kids just said two tass. So they said, well, early on, kids have a simple rule. If it ends in a voiced sound, add a S, an unvoiced sound, add a S. If it ends in an S, forget it. It sounds good. Leave it alone. It's already plural. So they have a simpler system than we do, but by the time they get to the second grade or so, they're they're getting pretty good at it. So that it builds, that complexity builds. Well, it, well, it builds, but what's remarkable about it is that it builds in such a regular way. It isn't that kids learn language in bits and pieces and every kid does it a different way. Children have their own ways of learning. Children have their own styles. They have their own temperaments. But when it comes to the acquisition of language as a system... The, the children abstract the rules, if I can say it that way, and I hesitate to say it that way, but they abstract the rules of the language in very much the same order. Mm-hmm. That is, children speaking English acquire English in very much the same order, uh, whoever they are and wherever they are. That That is a remarkable sort of universal. And it doesn't mean, you know, obviously other languages have different systems. Russia doesn't have it doesn't have articles, so you don't have to worry about acquiring articles in Russian. But within a given language, kids are acquiring it in very much the same way. So so this observation gave rise to uh, linguistics and psycholinguistics' own version of the nature versus nurture debate, you might say. <laughs> well, there is one out there, and uh-huh. there has been an enduring one out there. But um, um, it's... Uh, we talked about children having rules. This is why I was hesitant to talk about abstraction and things of the sort. Uh, within the field, there's a controversy as to what it. So we could describe what children do. We could say, okay, look, they make the plural, and they do this, and they do that. Right. But then, then you can you can say this is what they do. How do they do it, or why do they do it? Those are different questions. And trying to figure out how they do it, that is, what are the underlying psychological or cognitive or innate, if you're going to be that way, mechanisms, uh, that's a much harder thing, and we are not agreed on that. So what's happened is that there's a broad spectrum of belief as to how kids come to say two wugs. And, <laughs> and, well, it's really true. And, and yeah. So, I mean, Chomsky famously put forth this idea uh, that that there's kind of an innate universal grammar that gets triggered, right? That, that children get exposed to it. So what's the nuancing of that? Well, I, I, I'm not prepared to speak for Chomsky. And and uh, one thing, you know, he's obviously a, a, a brilliant thinker and has contributed a great deal to our field. Uh, one thing one has to keep in mind is that Chomsky and theory changes every couple of years. Yeah. That is the Chomskyan theory that I learned is not is not the Chomskyan theory that that people believe in now. So I'm I would not want to guess what the current view is on how children acquire language. What what I what I do know is that the people who are more of of that 
nativist bent, and that includes uh, Chomsky, it includes Steve Pinker, mm-hmm. it includes a lot of people of the sort of what you might call MIT school, they are more convinced that a lot comes innate or built into the human brain than those of us who are sort of what you might call interactionists. Mm-hmm. You see, I, I, uh, my, if, if I were to characterize a school, I cut, well, let me just finish the thought. Yeah. On the one side, you've got people who believe that much of language is innate. It's hardwired into your head. When you're born, you have the principles of grammar in place, all of those things. And you have a language acquisition device. On the other end of the spectrum, you have other good friends of mine who are of a much more behaviorist uh, view who say, well, you have uh, learning principles and parents spend a huge amount of time with children and they are basically helping to shape their language by reinforcing good attempts, by ignoring bad attempts, by modeling, by many different kinds of learning uh, activities. In the middle, you've got the interactionist world, and that's where most of us are now. And the interactionist people are saying, look, you, you have a capacity. I mean, what I would say is your brain is not formed when you're born. Mm-hmm. You have to build your brain. L- look, at the, look at what happened to the children in Romania who were taken well care of in nurseries or in, in orphanages. People fed them. They gave them clothing. They didn't talk to them. Those children's brains did not develop. Your brain develops through interaction with other people. And are they? And is, do they have serious language uh, oh, issues? Oh, please! Uh-huh. They have serious every issue. Mm-hmm. They are seriously compromised human beings. Mm-hmm. They have terrible, terrible problems if you if you don't have those critical experiences. So, so uh, we think, or I think, and a lot of people of my bent think that that language develops through interaction with other people talking to you, and that it is not through mere exposure to the language. Okay. In other words, you could believe, oh, you've got the principles. It's sort of what you said to begin with. You've got the principles. They're innate. Listen to the language around you. Great. It's a pro-drop language. You don't have to have the subject in your sentences. Let's go. I mean, it's sort of as if that's, that's it, that you've got it. You have the language principles. You have the parameters. You just have to hear the language, set the parameters, and away you go. Right. Well, uh, uh, I, uh, the thought experiment that I would propose for that is if you really think that, take your child and set her in front of the, I don't know, the Chuck Chi or the Korean cable news every morning at the end of the year. <laughs> well, they start tell speaking me, Korean. T- tell me how much Chuck Chi that child can speak. Uh-huh. And you know what the answer is going to be? It's going to be none. Right. Because children don't learn that way. That is not how you acquire language. People really have to... Oh, this is my belief, all right? And right. It's, it's not just a belief. It's from everything I have seen, you know, with, with, what's, with what happens with children and parents. And there is, of course, a fellow at MIT now, I suppose you have seen the work of Deb Roy at MIT. He's not a linguist. He's an engineer who has collected 350,000 hours of data on his child growing oh, up. Oh, this, this is the child project? It, it, yeah, it was a project uh-huh. at MIT. You uh-huh. can see he gave a TED lecture on it. And if if uh, listeners are interested, it's a wonderful TED lecture that you can see on, on the Internet uh, describing how his little boy acquired individual words. And you can just see the child going from to, you know, to water along the way, but with this tremendous interaction with the people around him. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, language development is, is, a, is a cooperative event. 
It happens between children and the people around them. And I think you need not just the cognitive stuff to understand how to, you know, abstract rules, but you also need to have uh, emotional underpinnings. Mm-hmm. You have to care. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why are you talking? You know, you, you have to care about other people. And, you know, people who don't care. I mean, one of the problems with, say, kids who have... Uh, problems like autism is that many of them are disconnected from other people and are are thereby uh, much impaired in communicating with other people. And you're saying that so, that lack of motivation is critical. That, I think the lack of affect, lack of attachment, uh-huh. all of those things. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that language has many components. Like language, how does language begin in, in kids? It doesn't begin with the child suddenly, suddenly uh, looking around and saying, wow, I'm going to make a subject a verb and an object, it begins with communication with the people around that kid. So in the first place, as you know, babies are listening to language before they're born. Right. You know, in, in utero, mm-hmm. babies are listening, and we now have technologies that enable us to show that not only are they listening, that that if they're hearing two languages, they're beginning to build a bilingual brain yeah. before they're born. Yeah. And and they're making preferences so that when they're by the time they're born, babies prefer to listen to their own mother as against somebody else. So, you, so interest in language and attachment to language begins early on, but communication with people around them also begins early on. Babies make eye contact with people. During the first couple of years of life, a lot of kids don't have a lot of language, but they're communicating with people. They're pointing, they're grunting, they're, they're following where you point. There's, right, there's, right. A lot of, there's a lot of um, pre-language going on, and we see it as part of language, as part of language development, because they are learning to communicate with the people around them. So I think other people might think, well, language is there so that we can do intellectual things like develop mathematical theories or something. But I think in the beginning, language is there so we can say, mommy, I want you. (laughs) And little kids are very good at that. You know, if, if this feels analogous and, and related to me, to the, to the more expansive understanding we're gaining of intelligence in general, right, that, that it's not just a matter of information plugged in. I mean, even the field of artificial intelligence has changed, that robots are more interactive and that that's how knowledge, how uh, important knowledge then is acquired and builds well, I I don't know robots, but I do know babies. Okay. So, 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 well, I you know here's the thing that we tend to be very compartmentalized in our studies, yeah. so that you know it's rare to find somebody who has studied, uh, uh, say, human development as intensively as they've studied linguistics. You know? mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. in fact, frequently linguists are just separate. You, a lot of linguists who make theories about how children learn language don't have children of their own. You know, <laughs> they, 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 they haven't had that, uh, that experience of seeing what goes on. I mean, that was why it was, I think, such a shock to the folks at, at MIT when Deb Roy came up with this, the engineer. Oh, because, because he worked with he, well, his own child. He was, he was studying his own child. He, he, oh, you have to see the TED show, really. It's okay, a wonderful, I'll, I'll it's look a, for it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful broadcast, uh-huh. but, and, and it's technology that nobody else can do, obviously, because he's got hundreds of cameras, mirrors. His whole house is wired. <laughs> his whole house is it's just incredible. All right, we'll wonder and, about those therapy bills 
in 20 years. <laughs> um, so, no, but I mean, as you as you mentioned and you wrote about, which is interesting, that 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 50 years ago, um, people in linguistics or psycholinguistics often or longer than that studied their own children, that Darwin studied his own yes. children. And I've yes. seen you be very clear. You have three daughters that you did not study on your daughters. But, well, I, but, <laughs> I've had a lot of good ideas from them. Well, well, that's what I wanted to ask you. And also, I mean, how did the work you were doing, what you were learning, influence the way you spoke with them and interacted with them? Well, you know, I think it's the other way around. I mean, we, I think we've already established that I'm a verbal kind of person. I can't resist <laughs> playing with language and everything. I, I obviously noticed a lot of what they were doing, but I didn't set up experiments with them. But look, for instance, one of my children said something that has become, that, that people don't seem to know she said, because I see people from all all spectra of the linguistic um, uh, world quoting it. One of my kids came home from preschool one day, and she said to me, my teacher holded the baby rabbits and I patted them. <sighs> and I said, oh, your teacher held the baby rabbits. And she said, yes. I said, uh, what did you say they did? I said, what did you say they did? She said, she holded the baby rabbits, yeah. and we patted them. And then I said, well, did you say she held them tightly? And she said to me, no, she holded them loosely. So here I'm thinking, well, I keep saying held. She keeps saying hold it. You know, anybody who thinks that children acquire language through imitation is making a mistake. I wrote a paper called Do Children Imitate? Uh, not based on – just with that as a thought because then I went out and I found lots of kids and I, I made a thing like the WUG test except it was all irregulars and I gave the kids the answer. Okay, so yeah. I said, I said, here is a goose. Now there are two geese. What's this? A goose. What are these? Two geeses. Two gooses. Whatever. I mean, they 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 didn't give me. They the, used irregular. the rule that, that they didn't. They realize. they overregularized okay. basically is what is what we say. So they were they. So the point of that paper was that kids will use their own system mm-hmm. at the stage where they are. They're not imitating you. Not that you're not having an effect on them, but they're they're not. They're not learning language through pure imitation. They're building an internal system. But that my teacher holded the baby rabbits ended up as big headers in Psychology Today and in Harvard <laughs> Magazine, all kinds of things. And I still hear people. I still hear people quoting it. So no, it was very useful or or just wonderful. Uh, since I'm interested in morphology, that is the the little parts of words. You know, not just not just the plurals and past tenses, which are inflection of morphology. But you know, there's there's derivation of morphology and derivational morphology are are the ways that you can derive a new word. So you have a word like happy which is um, an adjective, you can turn it into a noun by adding ness, happiness. Mm. Okay? Uh, Or you you can make Adverbs out of things, you know, quick, quickly, etc. So, for instance, when the same child said, we had a conversation one time. Um, uh, I was talking about giraffes, and she said, "What do giraffes eat?" And I said, "Well, they eat leaves mostly." And she said, "And what do they eat, Leslie?" Oh, you know. So, yeah. you, you, if you're a linguist, you pick up on things like right. that. It gives you ideas of how you of what's going on. But, but what but, well, you also see there is that they're really working, right? I mean, they're 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 yes. putting things you, together. You see the creativity. You you see that they actually have a systematic knowledge. Yes, that they have a systematic, and that was I think that was the big excitement. That that yeah. was people had you know getting back to what's good about the WUG test is even the fact that of course the WUGs are so cute. I say that because I drew them myself. <laughs> uh, I did. 
did. We were very poor in graduate school. Now you see people have you know take you to the you department didn't have of computer graphics. graphics <laughs> we didn't have we didn't have a department of graphics. We had like you know a pad of paper and a what yeah. to make make. I made them in five by seven cards, uh-huh. which I bought at the Harvard Coop, you know, yeah. uh, and use colored pencils, and that's the way we did it. Right. But it worked. It worked perfectly well. But anyway, well, yeah, and you know, just getting at. Um the fact that that language is about more than language, right? That it's about more than words or con- sentences constructed. You know, there's this phrase that's all through your writing and in your field from Stanley Hall, who I guess is the father of developmental psychology, the, uh, contents, yes, the contents of, of children's, children's minds. minds. I mean, just that <laughs> yeah. phrase, the contents yeah. of children's minds. Yeah. It's big. Yes, as bigger than we thought. I mean, that's you. You were right earlier on when you said that we're coming to understand so much more about intelligence. We 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 understand so much more about babies. I mean, you know, there was a time when people thought that babies had no sensation. Right, now, people, right, you do right. remember that people used to do open heart surgery on babies uh-huh. under without anesthesia under the. Uh, impression that babies couldn't feel anything. Right. They sort of thought they were like blind puppies when they were born, you know, just squirming masses. Mm. So now as we get more uh, sophisticated in our in our ways of of investigating them, we know more and more about them. But I hate to say that this is true about every other creature too. So those of us who still eat lobsters for instance, uh, you know, now have got to worry about the social life of the lobster. Mm-hmm. You know, so the the, uh, the whole question of sentience, the whole question of having meaningful lives, I think has uh, has spread. It turns out that an awful lot of creatures have complex and meaningful lives. Hmm. That's a big thought too. That's uh, and you know <laughs> it, it is it, it, yeah. it is it is one that that slows us down a little bit. Yes. You know, when you when you realize, you know, you start well, we're talking about language, but if you start thinking about the things that might not be so good in the country, a lot of it has to do, in my book, with not realizing the sentience of other creatures mm. and thereby causing great badness out there. I was thinking when I was getting ready to talk to you about a conversation I had with Martin Rees a few months ago who's a, a physicist in Britain. And, mm-hmm. you know, he studies black holes and red dwarfs and stars and the solar system, but is, you know, categorically says, as as those people will say, st- still the most complex phenomena in the universe by far are living beings. <laughs> Anything well, that's alive. True. Yeah, it's it's true. And and one of the things that one of the things we've been doing in our recent research, as a matter of fact, is trying to look at the linguistic concomitance of our connection to other living beings. Right. And, tell me about that, because I just I saw you mention that. But tell me what, right. what that well, research it's, it's, is it's about. A, it's, a, it's the latest thing I've been doing, yeah. which uh, which began uh, with a paper we wrote called "Alligators All Around." <laughs> I think somebody else wrote that first. Um, the uh, the acquisition of animal terms in English and Russian is a chapter we wrote in a book, but it was based on a paper we gave at a conference. We we were looking at children's early vocabulary, and here's the thing. When you look at young kids, you know, here I was telling you, oh, they all do it the same way. And, you know, and people can characterize early vocabulary. When you characterize early vocabulary, you say things like, it's in the here and now. It's, Hmm. you know, by here and now, hic et nunc, as we used to say when we spoke Latin. Right. Uh, It's in the here and now. 
Uh, it's things of interest to the child. It's things around the child. So babies, you know, two-year-olds have worms. They have words like mommy and daddy and baby and book and also Tyrannosaurus rex. You know, I mean, for some reason, they have a long, but nobody noticed this, right? This that they, they learned the names of animals? Is that? That they have huge animal vocabulary. Huh. So this is, this is what we began to look at. And we began to look at just the category of animals. And it really turns out that, well, for both English and Russian speaking kids, because that was the first set we did, we found little kids whose animal vocabulary has nothing to do with those those rules we were talking about. It's not things around them. It's not simple to say. It's not common words. I mean, we, uh, the Russian part, my colleague Elena Zaretsky finds little Russian kids playing, you know, say, Vot crocodilchik, you know, little crocodiles. Uh-huh. A 14 month old uh-huh. talking to a little crocodile, little play. Oh, that is that. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you begin to think that it isn't just the children, it is also we. We have this enormous connection to the living world that is reflected in our language, but in a way that we haven't been thinking about. At least I haven't until recently, and I don't know anything about it in the in the language literature. A lot of people are talking about children and animals and the importance of animals or how good it is to take a dog to the nursing home, things of that sort. But uh, the thing that I really was referring to, in a sense, is Edmund Wilson's views on uh, not Edmund Wilson, I'm sorry, E.O. Wilson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not my, my literature background got to me there. <laughs> sorry, E.O. Um, a sociobiologist. Bio- <laughs> yes, yes, and I'm not a big fan. I'm sorry. Well, we can, we can do <laughs> the Finland Station if you prefer. But anyway, uh, but um, but I, I'm not a big fan of sociobiology as a as a as as a theory, I mean, I'm, I'm not much, you know. I don't know whether genes are trying to replicate themselves. That, but that isn't the that isn't the point. the The point is that we have an enormous connection to the rest of the living world, and that we love the living world. Mm-hmm. We love animals and we love plants, and this is reflected in what we're doing with children. So the the, the next thing we did, or so we found that kids have huge animal vocabularies. So the next thing we did, and this is a paper that I'm writing with my colleague Brenda Phillips and also some other people, uh, the next thing we did was we have huge, in our field now, we've become very high-tech. We have data banks that have transcripts. I was talking about the transcripts we used to pass around at the seminars. Well, now everybody has contributed their transcripts to a huge data bank. So if I want to get mothers talking to their two-year-olds. I get hundreds and hundreds of them. People have contributed. Not only that, these transcripts are now addressable through computers. So I can say, look at all of the combinations of words where parents say, look at the, and pull that out. Pull out every sentence like that, and let's see what parents are telling children to look at. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we did that recently, and we pulled out over 2,000 utterances from 61 different people telling their young, young kids, look at the... Well, it's very interesting. In the first place, when we saw... When we, when we pulled, say, the uh, 30 most common words that parents said, look at the, uh, there was a huge overlap with children's early vocabulary. Hmm. A huge overlap. I mean, it was baby and book and kitty and bunny and things of that sort. Uh, so that if you're thinking that children acquire their early vocabulary just because of their own innate 
tendencies, yes, but parents are certainly helping because those are the same words the parents are using. But the other thing is this. Of the top, I'm trying to think it was either 50 or 30 words, of the top 30 words, I believe this is correct, that parents are calling kids' attention to, 12 are animals. I mean, animals are really right up there. We're, we're really, in fact, the example I gave, because I, I gave a, a little talk about this at the uh, World Science Festival. Right, I right. Believe, I, be, I believe that's what it was called. <laughs> Anomia hits. <laughs> um, it, it was at the World Science Festival. I, I, I showed a picture of uh, that wonderful horse from the caves at Lascaux. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I said, here's a picture that was drawn 17,500 years ago. It's pretty clear that an interest in animals has been with us for a long time. I mean, somebody expended a huge amount of time drawing that beautiful horse on that cave wall. So uh, th- so this interest in animals was with us. And as I, I think I said at the uh, World Science Festival, when you take your child for a walk... You say, "Look at the birdie." Yeah. Not look at the traffic cone. That's true. Okay. You you don't you. It's extremely rare for parents to say, "Look at the rock." Although, if you have a son, they'll still say, "Truck, car." <laughs> well, <laughs> but you're I'll right. You, they'll also talk no, about no. the animals. You you said a very smart thing there, which is we we got interested in whether or not the category of vehicles was equally large in kids, yeah. and and for some kids, and whether or not that is gender differentiated. Yeah. So you you could join our research. Team. Well, between my girl and my boy, it was gender <laughs> Well, no, I, I think I, it's true. But, of course, I, I, if somebody had taped you, they would have found some big differences in your speech to them, too. I, I, I gave another talk once. It was called Tigers and Sweeties. And oh. it was based on uh, the title came from uh, what a colleague of mine had reported. Uh, this is a woman who is herself a developmental psychologist and who has twins. Hmm. Dimorphic. One's a boy, one's a girl. Right. And she found herself calling her little boy Tiger and her little girl Sweetie. Oh, yeah. So, and, you know, no matter what you know, you're going to end up doing it the way you do it. So, so you probably talk differently to your daughter and son, but that doesn't mean that they were temperamentally different or uh, motorically different. But, you know, different mm-hmm. kids come different ways, too. I have, yeah. One of my daughters, the same one who said, my teacher holds the baby rabbits. Uh, also was one of those kids who, at the age of three, could walk through a parking lot and tell you the make of every car she saw. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and you didn't teach of, her that, did you? I, I didn't teach her that, and a lot of people, if I had, if I didn't say it was my daughter, would have been certain, oh, that's a boy thing. Uh-huh, I, you know, children, uh-huh. children are individuals, yeah. and they have individual interests. And, of course, once they become you know, enculturated or socialized, they have to pretty much follow the models of what's in our society. And, and, and that's really pervasive, the things we lay on kids to be kids. I, I used to ask my undergrad, undergraduate classes things like, you know, what's a girl, what do women eat? You know, in our society, we have we have these stereotypic notions about what boys and girls eat. Hmm. One, what do children eat? And the airplanes will tell you they have to eat macaroni and cheese. Right, I mean, right. as if every child wants mac and cheese. But if you ask older people, what do boys eat? What what do men eat? What do girls eat? Well, you know the answer. What do men? Eat? What do real men eat? 
steak. Everybody's good. Right? And potato. And potatoes. Okay. And, and bloody steak at that. You know. <laughs> that's right. so, Big so, slab so, of it. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, well, that's part of our socialization in the U.S., isn't it? Mm-hmm. I, I, I used to ask my, my undergraduate classes at Boston University, of course, we have this huge, diverse population of kids from all over the world. And it was really nice to say, and what do children eat in your society? And, you know, our kids, we say hot dogs. And then a Japanese kid would raise her hand very gently and say, miso soup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's you, you have to learn to do it the way your society does it. So, uh, so in a sense... You know, a little boy who doesn't like trucks but who likes Barbie dolls is going to be in big trouble right away. Yeah. With his parents and with other kids. So uh, I'm sure your son liked trucks, but I'm not sure that there's a gene for that. Okay. (laughs) All right. I mean, I'd actually really like to talk about this animal thing much longer, but let's let's move on. Maybe oh, oh, come back to. I, I mean, let me let me yeah. just finish my sentence about okay. the animal thing because okay. because I, there was a final observation okay. because I said when you take a walk, you say you know look at the birdie, you know not look at that's how we got into the trucks. Look look not look at the <laughs> traffic cone, etc. Uh, and, and then I said, and I will bet you that our ancient ancestor. When she finished this painting on the wall at Lascaux, 17,500 years ago, turned to her little cave kid and said, look at the horsey. Right, right. So that's what I think. In whatever her language was. (laughs) Well, yes, presumably she had a language, but if not, not. (laughs) You know, and so this is kind of pointing at something I I want to get at with you, which, I mean, you have studied and know a wonderful range of languages, just the ones I know about, Arabic, Norse, French, Old French. I heard you say somewhere that Sanskrit is your favorite language. Well, I said it was my favorite language because I and then that I misspoke, which is terribly embarrassing. It doesn't have nine cases. It says eight. It has nominative, accusative, instrumental, dative, ablative, locative, vocative, genitive. Hmm. I, I'm not getting there. Nominative, I, I, I won't start all over again. Nominative, accusative, <laughs> but never mind. It has a lot of cases, but I think I think it has one fewer than I said. But it has singular, dual, and plural. Well, I loved it because yeah, singular, uh, I, dual, and plural. I, mm. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. Uh, I I had always meant to go to India, and I I really like I, I like so much about India, and I like so much about the Indian. We read wonderful things. We when I took Sanskrit, we read what well, everybody does. You know, people take Sanskrit, and I think they're sort of like a standard curriculum you, that everybody who takes Sanskrit in this country and Great Britain they end up take reading the same thing. You read little pieces of the Mahabharata, you mm-hmm. know, and but it was wonderful. I just loved it. I, 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 it was just, it was. I, this is why I think undergraduates should not just take business administration, you know, right, right. It, or take business administration and Sanskrit, because it just has a, a, an effect on you for all your life. Well, so, so, so that's what I want to talk about about how, um, you know, how we are, in fact, how languages shape us or reflect things about us or about the cultures we come from. I mean, Sanskrit, for example, has a really important role as a sacred language. I mean, is there something well, that true. you see? Is there a way in which you see, I'm just asking, maybe you've never thought about this. Is there a way in which that language predisposes itself to uh, that kind of sacred, being a carrier of sacred 
text well, I, and I, teaching. I, I, I'm not a, I'm not a historical linguist, so yeah. I I can't speak intelligently uh, on this subject. My impression is that Sanskrit itself is a made language. It was not a spoken language. You know, some Skurtuma means, you know, the put-together language or something. The language that's spoken by people was Prakrit. So Sanskrit, I think, was used for ceremonial and yes, religious yes. purposes. It, it is the a little bit the way, you know, classical Latin was continued to be used. Right, after, but Latin didn't survive, yeah. what's interesting. You know, Latin was the language right. of the church, where Sanskrit, I think, was the language of the tradition and, and is yeah. still very I, much I, vital in that I, way. I, 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 guess, I guess so. I yeah. guess so. Yeah. I still well, remember all of my Sanskrit. <laughs> I really loved it. Yeah. And okay, so, but one thing you did get into is uh, Romani speaking gypsies in Hungary. Uh huh. Yes, but I don't speak. Uh, Lovari was the group that I dealt okay. with. And I'm sorry to say that I do not speak Lovari. My colleague, uh, who has since died, Zita Reger, was very fluent in, in Lovari, which is a, a, a kind of gypsy language in Hungary. And so I did all my research with her. We went mm-hmm. together. And she had wonderful, warm relationships with the gypsies. And, you know, we're saying gypsies, and if people hear this and they get angry, please know that some gypsies don't mind being called gypsies. Right. And and some gypsies are not Romani, et cetera. Uh-huh, so that uh-huh. I'm, I'm not trying to be prejudiced here uh, because what's happened is the gypsies are so mistreated everywhere. And Lord knows I don't want to mistreat them. And, and that, Yeah. The, and one of the things that you, that you could, you, when I, I always see you writing about when you, when you write about that, that your various experiences there is that you, you, you found a connection between this improbable survival um, yes. and cohesiveness of these yes. cultures that you thought might be related to how strongly they relate. Uh, they, they have linguistic. linguistic socialization. Yes, absolutely. Because, because here you have a group of people who are stigmatized and who everywhere they have gone have been treated just terribly. Just terribly, and uh, I mean it's still happening now. I mm-hmm. mean, as you know, people mm-hmm. they they park their their van or their caravan or whatever it is, and people are chasing them, and people are assuming terrible things about them. But what they have is a powerful oral culture, in which children know from early on what's expected of them and what their traditions are. We saw we saw gypsy kids at the age of eight and nine were playing but carrying on mock marriages and one of them would play the part of the preacher and do this fabulous job of a marriage ceremony. Or they know they know complex games or or parents have conversations with kids in which they talk about their future life. Hmm. We had one where the mother was saying to her little boy, Dennis, you know, what will you do, Dennis, when you grow up? And you would take horses to the market. And and there's just an enormous amount of explicit socialization so that kids know where they are. So I I think that does make a difference. We also heard some funny stuff. Uh, Gypsies, as you know, within the culture... Uh, emphasize music. You know, if you go to Howard Gardner's kinds of intelligences uh, in the gypsy community, they emphasize a couple that we don't emphasize that much, and they don't pay that much attention to some that we do. So that, you know, mathematical and verbal ability are our big things. They obviously are in favor of those things, but they also emphasize interpersonal intelligence. Hmm. And they emphasize music. And uh, we've seen 
very, very young kids, you know, singing on key, and parents singing to young kids uh, about their future. A, a, a woman was being funny, but she was singing to her 11-month-old, sleep, little baby, sleep. When you grow up, you will love many women and leave them. <laughs> That was quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> Which I don't mean as a slam against the culture. Yeah. <laughs> it was just her being funny. But yeah. it, but there's a lot there's a lot explicit going on there, and the emphasis. Uh, uh, well, an interesting thing happened when when I first began to work in Hungary with the Gypsies. Uh, the people I was working with were at the Hungarian Academy of, of Sciences. In fact, I was the first American linguist who went on a a, a uh, a, a cross, a, a cross cultural, or a, uh, a, 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 I don't know how you call it, but it was a, a, a trip to uh, Hungary, sponsored by academic people here and by academic people. And this there. was in, the, in and, the Iron Curtain days, right? Though it was 1981, oh, and it was hilarious. Yeah. It was hilarious. Nobody in Hungary had a credit card. They paid me. They paid me 1,200 forints a day, and you know, forints are like tissue paper. I mean, they're they're not good for anything. Mm-hmm. They're just they were a forint was worth two cents, something mm-hmm. of the sort, and they didn't have a. They didn't have credit cards. They gave me a basket of money. Yeah. Here's, a ba- here's your basket of yeah. money. But but um, it, the view of gypsies was extremely negative at the time. The man in the Hungarian Academy who was sort of the expert was literally publishing works saying the gypsies are lower on the evolutionary scale than Hungarians. Mm-hmm. All right. Less evolved, right. and of course, in, in gypsies were in concentration sense. camps during. The- well, they had been mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. If you go to the uh, if you go to the Holocaust Museum in, yeah. in in Washington, one of the things you could do is get the identity of a gypsy kid and see what happens to that kid. And really bad things happened. Yeah. So, so the view was just terrible. And when my colleague Zita and I. We didn't have a car. We were taking buses out to the countryside to visit these little villages. And if we stopped by the side of the road and asked some person, you know, we're looking for such and such, they'd say things to us in Hungary, like, you're not going to go see the gypsies, are you? You know, very, very bad. So it was important to show, oh, oh, and and people said things about the gypsies, very much the, the same sort of prejudice and mindless things that they used to say about uh, people of color in this country, mm-hmm. that they don't talk to their children, you know, that they don't care about their children, all of that sort of stuff. And then, of course, when we got to the gypsy villages, we found that it was completely different, that there was huge interaction between parents and kids and between everybody else and kids, you know, that whole mm-hmm. it takes a village kind of thing. Yeah. We found that other people knew how where at what stage various kids were. We found a lot of interactive stuff. And what I was starting to say earlier was that gypsies emphasize interpersonal intelligence. We just surrounded by a bunch of kids who were so interested, and people were so interested in one another, enormous interpersonal activity going right. on, and great acuity. So one of the things that, that that leads you to think is that, you know, they're so good at it. They're so much smarter at it than we are that no wonder uh, they become fortune tellers sometimes mm. and manage. Oh, managed, well, you know, fortune tellers pick up on these tiny cues about yeah. people and they manage to convince them to give them all their money. I would not go to a fortune teller because I know that they're smarter than I am. I mean, I say linguistically that part of the world and that whole phenomenon is so interesting, right? I mean, R- Romani is a 
is in an Indo-European language. Is that right? It but, is. But then it Hungarian, is. Hungarian, is, is, Hungarian is not. Hungarian is like nothing else but Finnish, right? Or something. Well, and it's not much like Finnish. Let me tell you. Yeah, <laughs> it's got a lot of loan words from uh, from Turkish, actually. Huh. But of course, it's not Turkish. Well, Turkish is Turkic Altaic, and and Hungarian is Finno-Ugric. I don't know. There might be some connection way way back somewhere, but I don't. I don't. I don't know that there is. You yeah. know. But but no, Hungarian. Uh, I uh, unfortunately I mentioned that my folks came from Hungary, but you know, people who came that generation were under the same kind of pressure people are now. America is this vast monolingual country. Yeah. They wanted to have American kids. So uh, although my mother couldn't help using like baby talk words with me in Hungarian, and I heard Hungarian around me, so that if I try to talk it, it sounds like Hungarian, but I unfortunately did not learn Hungarian as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I regret that. And, of and so again, you know, I'm kind of um, I'm kind of wanting to circle back to this idea that uh, you know, if we change our language, which really immigrants to this country often have thought, I mean, if you change the language, do you also change who you are? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> I think there's no question. You know, I, you talk, but we only have phenomenological reports on this. But you, you, you talk to all kinds of people who tell, you know, when people say that, you know, French is a language of love and, and I don't know, English is the language of commerce. I don't know what they say English is, but there are all these sayings. But you talk to people who are multilingual, and, and they will certainly tell you that they feel different in the different languages. Right. I, had a, I had a funny experience. I used to go to visit a, my ex-college roommate who lived in Germany for a while. She married a German. And she'd say to her husband, uh, Hans, she'd say, she was actually from, she is from Augusta, Georgia. And, and she'd say to Hans, she'd say, Hans, what do you think of James German? And he'd say, well, your German is all right, but why are you always so angry when you speak? <laughs> Right. I, I say, oh, it must have been all those Nazi movies I watched. Yeah, <laughs> you know, Alice is verboten. I oh. mean, you know, you 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 end up with a different expression on your face. There, there's an old literature on language and national character which nobody pays attention to anymore. But I tell you, a lot of those things are coming around again. Yeah. For instance, the war the Warfian hypothesis has been revived. You know, the Warfian hypothesis being that language is shapes your view of the world. You know that mm-hmm. if you if you are of the back to the where we began the, the nativist school who believed that language is hardwired in your brain and all that then it doesn't matter what language you're going to speak because the principles are there and you're just going to learn the minor differences but if you're on a more of a social end of things you could well believe that language you know your brain is capable of obviously, of laying down language. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. But the different languages are going to give you different worldviews, mm-hmm. are, are going to affect your personality, are going to emphasize different things, and that you might, by virtue of speaking the different language, be a somewhat different person. And, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's I think, some, some feeling for that. Well, one, one of the things where, where language clearly changes the way you see the world is that language categorizes things differently. You know, if things, give me an example. Uh, Can you think of an yeah, example? Yeah, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. Take English has the word water, right? Now, the fact is that we call all kinds of things water. I mean, for instance, if I say to you, what is in Boston Harbor? 
Well, you're not in Boston, and you don't have a harbor. I'm sorry. What have you got out where you are? Minnesota? Are you in Minnesota? Yeah, we have Lake Superior. In Lake. It's not got, bad. Well, what's, the, what's in Lake Superior? Water, right? <laughs> right. It's water, right? Yeah. What, what, what's the rain made out of? Yeah, water. Water. Mm-hmm. What's in Boston Harbor? Mm-hmm. Water. It's water. What comes out of the tap? Water. Mm-hmm. What's What's in the toilet? Mm-hmm. Water. I mean, we we see a lot of different things as water, as basically water, even though some of them are filled with so much salt, it would kill you if you drank it. Uh, some of it is so filled with pollution, it would kill you. I mean, they're tremendously different things, yet we say, well, yeah, but that's salt water, that's rain water, that's harbor water, that's river water, but you see, they're all water, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, take that same water and heat it up and drag a chicken through it. What does it become? Soup. Right. Right. We don't say, oh, have some chicken water, okay? Right. Right. Uh, or we or we don't, or we drop some leaves in it, and we say, oh, it's tea. Well, it seems to me that the difference between coffee and tea are, is not as great as, say, the difference between the salt water in Boston Harbor and the fresh water that falls from the sky. You know, they're, 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 we, mm-hmm. we, because things have a label, we think of them as a being a particular thing. Now, yeah. different languages cut the world into different, into different slices. Like, do you do French? A little bit. Okay. 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 Well, French has words. Well, in English, a container, we have a glass container, it's called a bottle. And it could be a tiny bottle or it can be a big bottle, but it's bottles. But in French, at some point... It's not a bottle anymore. It becomes a flacon. It's, mm. it's a, a, the little. You, you don't have a tiny bouteille, at least not to my knowledge. So right, right. I, I, th- I, I think language categorizes things differently. Here, here's so, a heavier one for you that I heard yeah. recently. Um, a, a, yeah. woman, a friend of mine here who's a psychologist who's actually kind of coined a phrase in psychology, ambiguous loss, which is sort of when people lose someone but they are not able to grieve, you know, in a war because uh-huh. they don't have the body. They don't. They don't actually yeah. get to bury and mourn. Or even yep. she's using it now with Alzheimer's disease, so that there's kind of an incremental loss. And she, uh-huh. when her book, when this term ambiguous loss, they couldn't exactly translate into German, she said, because there's no word for ambiguous. <laughs> oh, dear. Right? Which is very <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> That's a very bad sign, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, you have to be very careful. You, you have to be very careful as to, you know, uh, that, I think one of the things that killed the, the Warfian hypothesis uh, in, the, in the old days before it got revived, was that people began to pick apart um, uh, sort of simple-minded interpretations. For instance, uh, if you don't appreciate the fact that some metaphors are dead, you could think that a language is saying things that speakers don't think of at all. In other words, if if you say, describe your house, and I say, well, it's a nice house and has a fence that runs around the garden. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, if if you if you were not a native speaker of English and you heard me say, "I have a fence that runs around the garden," right. you might think, <laughs> yeah. "Wow!" In this lady's mind, fences. Maybe at night it runs around the garden. Yeah. You know, right. Uh, right. people. You you might get the impression that English is a much weirder language mm-hmm. than it is mm-hmm. because you would give full credence to the dead. Uh, metaphors. So you have to be very, very careful about that. And that's that's why not knowing another language, just going in and saying, here's how they say it. Yeah. So, right. But, but, but the and, and, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, okay. But the inability to say that something is ambiguous, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, who knows? Uh, you, you'd have to find some situation where where Germans find things ambiguous and see what they do. Yeah, right. So how is uh, the science, the new science of the brain, um, changing your field? I don't know how involved you are with that, but like what can be studied and how it can be studied? And um, Oh, it's incredible. Uh, it, what, what can be studied is, I don't do that, all right? There are wonderful people who do. There are a number of people out in the West Coast, people in Vancouver, who are doing absolutely wonderful things in looking at See, what's very exciting is that they're beginning to pattern activation in the brain. And and now they can do it on in, non-invasively on tiny children. So you can tell where things are happening in the brain. Mm-hmm. You can tell either by measuring blood flow or by measuring changes in oxygen. But these are all external, you know. You don't have to, and you don't have to... People have been using functional MRI for some time, but the problem with functional MRI, if anybody's ever been in one of those machines, it's like... It's like having a. It's horrible. And you it's couldn't noisy. put a three-year-old in there very. Exactly. Very long. No, you'd have to sedate them or yeah. something. You'd have to. They have to be unconscious. Uh-huh. But now they have these little caps they can put on. Because well, they've been doing evoked potentials for a long time, and evoked potentials are uh, they put like a cap on kids with little electrodes that are able to pick up electrical changes in the scalp. I'm less impressed by that, although it's cheap. You know, uh-huh. it's it's relatively easy to do. But there are a couple of new ones that I'm not even going to try to name their names because. They're complex and names keep changing. That where where they are able to measure these changes either in in um, in uh, electrical activity, uh, in magnetic activity, or in blood flow or in oxygen, something of that sort. And they're able to tell where things are happening in the brain. So, so is, is there that, anything that that this is this is making apparent that? You know that's that's really changing the equation, or or, or is it? How is it weighing into this? Th- th- these polls that we talked about, this discussion—is it nativist or or in, how how interactively we learn language and what that means? Well, it, it is showing that some of the things we talked about earlier in this conversation have actual physiological correlates. Uh-huh. So when I said that you can sh- that babies who are hearing two languages in utero are born with a bilingual brain, they actually have brain testing that shows that they have activation for both languages, etc. So, so, in, so are the two languages in different places? Or how does that... Oh, I, 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 I wouldn't want to get into that. Yeah. I, I don't know. and uh-huh. I'm, 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 That's not my field, but, but all I'm saying is that they are able to show uh-huh. that that there is brain activation for uh, for both languages, and so that their brain, all by the time they're born, their brain is not the same as a monolingual kid's brain. You're, you're building a bilingual brain. That's so really the, the other the other thing is that is that with this complex um, technology, they are indeed able to show, uh, as we said earlier, that earlier and earlier. Uh, in a child's life, that that they are able to make distinctions and they're hearing what's going on, mm-hmm. and and their brain is really doing it. But that's but look, that's that's neurology. I mean, it is psychoneurology mm-hmm. or it is linguistic neuropsychology. You give it a name, whatever you like. 
that will go on, but that doesn't mean that people are going to stop looking at mothers talking to their children. No. We need every kind of research. You know, what, what, what science has to look for is what is called convergent validity, and that is that many different kinds of research will ultimately come in on what is the truth as we know it, or as, we, as best we can know it for our era, because as you know, things change. People discover germs, etc. So, uh, I mean, you know, there was a time when people didn't know about germs, but so that that uh, that, and there there might be things that we don't know about right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there may be there may be things that we just don't know about, or haven't thought about, or given and paid any attention to. But but so the the brain science is wonderful, uh, but it isn't where every developmental psychologist is going to go, and it is not doing away right. with basic research in human interaction. I wonder if so. So uh, linguistics was kind of more philosophical in its earlier generations and became more of a science, especially in your lifetime. Um, I wonder, though, if here at the 21st century, for, for whatever reason, it seems to me that in a lot of scientific fields, there are kind of new philosophical questions emerging from the advanced science. I mean, I think we've, you and I have touched on that a little bit. I mean, there are new, new more sophisticated questions being asked about what intelligence is and what makes us human and how we learn. True, and and you can you can ask those questions from all sides. Just, just let me back up for a moment yeah. though, about linguistics, because linguistics has always had several threads, and one of them is philosophical. And for instance, I would say that the uh, the 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 general the, the the nativist linguists stem from a very philosophical tradition, where you where you can think about language, for instance. Uh, you don't even need a lot of data because you assume that everybody is exactly the same so that if you think hard enough, you'll understand how things happen. But they come from a very philosophical tradition. A lot of other linguistics stems – that's modern linguistics. Let's just talk about uh, the uh, – the, the 20th century. Uh, there were great linguists before that, and we could get back to uh, Sanskrit because the people mm. who wrote Sanskrit down were terrific linguists. But in the 20th century, uh, the people who did descriptive language li- linguistics, uh, who sat down and said, here's how the plural works, and here's how the past tense works, and here's what sentences look like, often had very pragmatic reasons and religious reasons for doing this. You know, linguistics has a huge religious history. We'll say Uh, some more about that. (laughs) All right, I will. My brother-in-law, Henry Allen Gleason Jr., was a linguist. He wrote a book called An Introduction to Descriptive Linguistics. It is the book that I read and used as a textbook as a student in linguistics. It's what I when I made the WUG test, it was his descriptions of how language works that I relied on, not something that came out of the more philosophical group. Now the the um the 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 religious linguists were missionaries, and one of their purposes, mm-hmm. and they still exist. If you if you look up a group called the Summer Institute of Linguistics, there are still people out there whose aim in life is to go to distant parts of the world, find languages that have not been written down, find people who speak those languages, sit down, figure out how the language works. Get it written down. Give the people a writing system so that they can give them the Bible. Mm, 
Okay. I mean, that is a major, a major linguistic missionaries were, were a major force in 20th century American linguistics. Hmm. Wow. So if you look up names like people like, like Henry Allen Gleason or Kenneth Pike, you know, a number of them were missionaries. Hmm. They were, we were religious people who had, you know, you go to India where you say, well, there are a thousand languages and yeah. an awful lot of them have not been written down. Let's get to work. Let's, let's bring the Bible to the world. I'm just also thinking in this context about um, conversations I've had with um, people in the Pentecostal movement, charismatic movement. And some of those early Pentecostals, when they were speaking in tongues, um, believed that they were speaking in foreign tongues and that they would then, that this was equipping them to be missionaries. Uh-huh. Did you know that? Too bad. And, yeah, no, <laughs> too, and then they would go bad. places like India and Sorry. China. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody spoke Pentecost. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. As, usually when people speak strange things. It turns out that it's based on their local language in some uh-huh. sense. Uh, I, I had some discussion with people. There was this um, this little video that went viral, some little boys that were babbling at one another. I, I saw, I watched saw. that when I was getting ready to see twins, right? They were talking to each oh, other. Oh, you saw my little clip yes, on that? Yes, Because it was very funny. It looked like, he heard these little boys, they were darling, and they were going, ba 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 ba. Uh-huh. All right. And, and all kinds of news broadcasts, you saw the anchors looking at one another yeah, no, seriously I- saying, what are they saying? Yeah, I, oh, I wonder what that is. So somebody finally came to me and said, what are they saying? And I say, they are not talking. They're it's saying called, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It is called jargon babbling. Uh, right. It is a well-known stage that a lot of kids go through. Yeah. It's not even very advanced jargon babbling because they are not varying their vowels at all. Yeah, I have you know, to say, I, saying, I didn't understand what everybody was reading into that video. <laughs> it was very funny. So, but but that's, that, but that's why it's always important if they call you up from the local news to talk to them because otherwise heaven knows what people will tell people yeah i just i just want to ask you a couple more questions i i I want to come back to something that you wrote um this was a review of a book that you wrote in 2003 and and the title i think is evocative it language acquisition is it is it like learning to walk or learning to dance Right. Well, that's the real question, isn't it? I mean, it's not the real question. What is that question? Well, uh, uh, people who are, I talked about sort of this this scale of people, some of whom think that language is like completely built in and some of whom thinks it's acquired and learned. Um, A man named Ernst Merck wrote a book. Um, and I honestly don't remember the particular name of this book because he wrote several excellent books. One of the ones called The Mother of Eve, in which he looked at everything that Eve, that Adam and Eve and Sarah, those These three kids, kids we were talking studied, about. Yeah. He, he, he looked at The Mother of Eve, and he found that, you know, she said hundreds of thousands of simple phrases to her kid. And if you, if you say, well, children just do it by themselves. Well, no. Hmm. I mean, she was saying, give me the book. That's the book. Here we are. That's et cetera. So, uh, th- so this, uh, he, he he had talked in his book about um, about how to understand what is going on with language, and I thought it was a pretty good analogy. Uh, and I'm not sure he made it or I made it. I think he did. But but he points out that um, that language is not the only thing that is that is universal in our species. That uh, in, in Essentially, every society we know, there is music and dance. Now, mm-hmm. I know there are some where they won't let you do it, but but let's assume that there weren't prohibitions against it. Human beings seem to have music, and they seem to have dance. And uh, one of his points was that um, that dance is built on basic stepping. You know, we mm-hmm. walk. We know mm-hmm. how to walk. Right. But dance itself is an incredibly elaborate 
system built on our basics of being able to walk. Right. So, um, so it's it, it, in a sense, uh, dancing is not innate; it is a learned activity, and, and it differs from society to society. It's a creative and, activity. It's it's doing something creative with that innate capacity. Yeah, but 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 but. But learning to dance, you just don't leap up in a culture and dance. Right. You, it takes years of right. training and learning how to dance. You have the basics because you can walk. Right. If you can't walk, you're going to have trouble dancing. But ultimately, dancing is a learned, a complex, an incredibly complex learned activity yeah. that people learn. So I guess the question is, is, is language like learning to walk or learning to dance? Was that what, was that what the title was? That was the title. And here's, okay. here's <laughs> something else you wrote. You wrote in that article, you wrote, possibly we are asking the wrong questions. For instance, when we look to innateness, why do we not consider what might be innate in us as nurturing yes. adults? That is correct. And, and that's exactly what I was talking about with the animals, you see, is that, is that we, it's not just children who carry possibly innate things. We come with a, our, with a long history of being attached to other living creatures. So to assume that children would just be picking up birdie and doggy because that's the way they are, mm-hmm. misses the point that we are that way too. And that we are bringing doggies and birdies to them and talking about them. So uh, that, that's that's what I mean is that it's a, a language acquisition is a joint activity. And if there is if there are innate components, there are innate components in adults as well as in children. And some of them are our attention to the world, and some of them are our love of other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what are we, we are innately predisposed to pay attention to little children and to talk to them. So let's not just assume that we are scientists sitting around watching babies unfold. We're unfolding with them. It's a cooperative event. That's, mm. I think, what I was saying. Mm. And that's part of what I meant when I wrote. Think about what, is, what might be innate in all of us, not just, not just the babies. How do you think you uh, would ponder the question or your sense of the question of what it means to be human. How do you think that's different because or informed by this life you've led studying language? What it means to be human? Well, I think, I, I think um, ultimately, since we're, we keep discovering, as we've said through this past hour or so, that other creatures have many of the characteristics that we previously thought were only ours. And and we find this increasingly. I think that what is most human about us... So human being human isn't being kind because, you know, remember the, the child that fell in the gorilla moat and the gorilla picked it up tenderly and mm, rescued right, it? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, gorillas are kind. Uh, it, it isn't... It isn't a lot of things. It isn't having technology because, you know, chimpanzees make sticks to catch their termites or whatever. I mean, they don't mm-hmm. go to the moon with them. But I think that for me, probably the biggest distinction, if we need to make a distinction, and by the way, I don't think we need to make any nor- – you know, I, I don't think that humans are are not animals. We are animals. Mm -hmm. We are very complex animals, and we're very smart and very destructive. You know, we have some good and bad qualities. But I guess for me, the most important 
difference, I see, is um, is the ability, is self-consciousness, is consciousness, is, the, is consciousness of ourselves, the ability to reflect on ourselves and to comment on that hmm. so that, uh, you know, we may be able to get. I mean, I, I know that my friends who have gorillas uh, have felt that their gorillas were commenting on the world. But we do know that human beings are able to reflect on their existence and to comment or to to talk about any aspect of their existence. And I don't think, I think for now, that does distinguish us from other creatures. And that certainly puts a point on this idea that, you know, language is about more than the construction of sentences that I mean to say it that way that it is it is it, it's this vehicle by which we are can do many things but among them reflect on the world yeah. and reflect and connect and con- yeah and connect and reach out to others as well that's right that, that's right I mean we are able to think about the past and the future and about people who are in distant places and people who never existed there's to have that rich kind of uh conceptual world i think is probably pretty pretty much late, pretty much restricted to humans mm-hmm. A- anything else anything else that occurs to you that we didn't talk about or that you wanted to you'd like to say last word mm. <laughs> well i don't i don't don't ask me to say my last words <laughs> that's <laughs> just dangerous. for this 5 minutes that's all i mean <laughs> no, no I, I don't think I have any last... Well, yes, I have last words. I don't know. Because people people are wondering what to do with themselves. And people keep asking me that, you know, what do you do with yourself? And I think we live in... People always think they live in parlous times. And our times are not good. But, you know, they've been a lot worse. You know, we're not we're not, at, we're not having a nuclear war. Uh, I, I think we should uh, look to the best of it. And that uh, language is a very, very exciting field. But there are other exciting fields, too. So I always try to encourage young folks Mm -hmm. to do what really excites them. Because one of the things that that I've discovered in my own life is that uh, it's a little bit like like when you read uh, Ulysses, you know, saying saying yes at the end there, uh, is that if you agree to do things, uh, frequently, you don't know what will come of it, but all kinds of fascinating things do. Uh, I, I agreed to write my undergraduate thesis on the gypsies, and I had no idea that I'd end up in Eastern Europe dancing with the gypsies. You know, <laughs> I mean, you just you just don't know. So I think people should be should be brave, should be brave and take a chance and do what excites them. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's basically it. That's great. This was so much fun. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you. It's been fun. Yeah. Okay. It's great. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.